Amen. Thank you, Brother Dan. If you have your Bibles, turn with me again tonight to Matthew eleven twenty nine. <clears throat> Anybody want to read that for us again tonight? Thank you, Dan. For you, those of you who have been here for the last several months, we have kind of hovered around this verse and the one previous to this uh, for several weeks now. And this is our fifth week on the example of Christ. And we're looking at the middle of the verse uh, where Jesus says, Learn of me. And as, as I thought about this and you know began to study, this is our fifth week, as I said earlier, how much can we learn of Christ? Say it again. Yeah, in fact, the whole Bible is about him, if you will. And so that's why, that's why we're working our way through this. And certainly, uh, he says, learn of me. Why would he say that? There's no other examples? Yeah, amen. There is no better example. He is the perfect example. And, of course, he's the only one who meets uh, a statement like that. Now, we've kind of worked our way through this. And if you've been here the last few weeks, uh, we've, we've looked at what's involved in imitating Christ. And there were about seven or eight things. And we talked about that. And the conclusion that we drew from that was imitating Jesus is not an option. It is essential in our walk with God. But also, we looked at some of the things that Jesus did while he was here that we cannot do. We cannot imitate. Anybody have any example of what it might be, or one of them? Raise the dead, absolutely. Forgiving sin. And, uh, well, Dan, I like what you said, and I agree with you. But what about if we keep serving Christ for ten more years? Still can't do it. So there are quite a few things he did while he was here, that we cannot imitate because he is God and we are not. That's the miracles. Uh, and, and Dan, you said forgiving our sins. And in fact, the entire work is mediated. We can't imitate that. He is unique in those areas. Also, uh, there were some certain things that he did that applied to the culture and the time he lived. Uh, for example, uh, he was circumcised. Again, keeping with the law, we don't have to do that anymore. And some other things that he did that went with the time. So we began last week looking at some of the areas where we can and we should imitate Christ. And one we talked about was uh, the things that are, that are morally obligated to us that pertain to all men at all times. Second of all, uh, in areas where we, t- we are to be good citizens. Uh, I was talking with somebody this just past week about this, and uh, I heard John McCarthy, I think Jason did as well a year or two ago, address this. Nowhere in the Scriptures are we called to rebel against government. And one example that Jesus gave uh, that we know that he lived out uh, when he was asked, was it law, should he, should he pay taxes? Well, he didn't have to, but what did he do? He did. It was the right thing to do. And so we're to do those kind of things. But also, uh, several times, Jesus would heal on the Sabbath, and of course the Pharisees didn't like that, and they would call his hand, and basically he said, hey, is it right? Is it okay to heal somebody? Sure it is. So we have to do what is right and whatever is uh, needful. 
But there's some other areas that we're going to begin with, we began with last week as well, that we do need to imitate, and we're to conform to the example that he left of a lot of virtues in his own life. First of all, uh, we talk about his purity and his holiness, and his purity and holiness is a pattern uh, for you and I as children of God to imitate. Now, I say imitate. What does that mean? Copy. Okay, I like that. Now, will we finally become perfectly holy in this life? No. But he gave us an example to follow. And I like your word there, copy. Now, uh, several things about his holiness that we cannot uh, obtain in this life. Uh, he, is, he was essentially holy in his being. Now, let me remind you. Jesus was born into this world about 2,000 years ago. Is that when he became God? He was already God. Is that when he became holy? He was already holy, okay? He, essentially, he is holy. Now, as children of God, we are becoming holy as we walk with the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. So when he entered this world... He wasn't born God. He was already God. He was already holy. The second thing we talked about last week, he was effectually holy. He is able to make other people holy, okay? We can't do that. Christ can do that. He makes others holy. The third thing is, he is infinitely holy. What do I mean by that? That's right. There's no limit to his holiness. And so he is God. And how many gods are there? Just one, and I'm looking around. If I had a mirror, I could include myself. None of us are him. He is God alone. And so in those areas, he is unmatched. We cannot imitate him completely in those areas. But that being true, we still have to realize that the holiness of Christ, the holy life that he lived, is an example or a pattern for us to follow in our daily walk with God. Now, remember, he was pure throughout. In fact, Isaiah says he was holy, holy, holy. And we are becoming holy. Uh, he was truly holy. He was sin- sincerely holy. And certainly that ought to be our goal in our life. It ought to be genuine. It ought to be sincere. And, you know, uh, and no matter where he went, no matter who he rubbed shoulders with, did he lose any holiness? No. Didn't matter. It stayed the same. First Peter 1.15. Anybody got that? Want to read it? First Peter 1.15. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. That's our lifestyle. We're to be holy in our lifespan. He was also exemplary holy. Uh, in fact, whether it be the Pharisees or the Sadducees, in all their debates and all their trickery and scheming, did they ever catch Jesus off guard? Did they ever outwit him? In fact, we read last week of the time when uh, the temple guard sent soldiers to arrest him. And when they come back, they didn't arrest him. They said, why? We've never heard a man speak 
like he speaks. He amazed those he came around with. There was no other person came close to exemplify the life that he did. But also he was strictly holy. And what's interesting, there came a time in his ministry when he finally said to the Pharisees, the religious group, I challenge you, so which of you can truthfully accuse me of sin? What's the answer? They couldn't do it. He said, here's your chance. I'm, I'm, I'm challenging you right now. Can you, any of you, speak up? Can you truthfully, truthfully accuse me of sin? Second thing about Christ, his obedience to the Father's will. Folks, that is an example, a pattern for you and I to imitate in our life. Now, we have to remember, we talked about this last week, his obedience was constant. In fact, it continued until when? Until he died, to his very last breath. And the Bible tells us we are not to be weary in well-doing. The third thing that we can imitate is his self-denial, okay? That was a pattern for you and I to follow. Matthew 16, 24. Anybody got that? Phyllis, I, I know you're a student of the Scriptures, but does that verse tell us that following Christ is always easy? No. It's going to take what? Denying ourselves. It is. It's going to take everything we have. So he denied himself, and that's a pattern for us. We're to deny ourselves, and we're to take up our cross and follow him. Now, again, we can only resemble him in that area because he is God, and we are not. And we can't do it perfectly like he did as he walked in this world. Second Corinthians chapter 8, look at verse 9. What does that verse tell us? What does that verse tell us? That we might be what? And be rich like he is. Now my question is, how do we gauge what Christ did for the glory of God? How do we gauge what he gave up for us? Say it again, Phyllis. We can't. We have, we, in our wildest imagination, we can't even fathom in our mind how much he gave up. He became poor for our sakes. That through his poverty, we could may, be made rich. Now we know that salvation is free. It's by grace through faith. And the Bible says that faith, even not our own, God gave us that faith. But we also know that once we're saved, there will be some sacrifices involved if we're going to walk with Jesus. But my question is, what sacrifice did Jesus make for us? Say it again, fellas. Everything. Even his very life. And so when I think about that, 
How in the world can I complain about what God asked me to do? <laughs> Thank you, Dan. We do not. But you know what? I can only speak for myself. Every once I catch myself complaining. But when we compare it to what he did for us, no matter what we go through, it is really so trivial. We'll be in Genesis chapter 22 in Sunday school when God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And I began working on that today. And as I went through those verses, and I've been through them a lot of times, and you have too, I began to weep. Could I do that, Lord? Would I be willing, <laughs> you know, in verse 2 of chapter 22, God says, Abraham, Abraham said, Lord, here, here, here am I. I said, Dan, I say, I say, God, don't talk to me. Talk to Dan. <laughs> you know, I'm not here right now. But Abraham said, here am I. And I, I literally wept when I, when I began reading those verses again today. And I'm not sure that I could do that. Only by, God, only by God's grace. So my question would be then, everything that Jesus did, was any of it that he did, which part of it was he obligated to do? None of it. He didn't have to. He didn't have to. Can you imagine that? But what did he do? He did it all. He did it So he was not in the, under any obligation to deny himself or us. But he also says, if we're going to follow him, we have to deny ourselves. We must be willing to deny ourselves for his sake. Now, he wasn't obligated, but he did it. And by the way, and if you're like me, you've read through the New Testament at least a couple of times. Uh, when, did, when did he complain about what he had to do? Not one time. Not one time. Philippians. He did what now? And he wouldn't. He would not disappoint the Father. And he wouldn't do that. He didn't want to. And I hope this, we're going to read a verse in Philippians in a moment, but I, I hope it's not said of us, any of us. Uh, Philippians 2.21. That's the world. But if we are His, we should be seeking the things that are His, not our own things. Not self-love, not to be petted, not to be pampered, not to be indulged, we have to mortify ourselves. We talked about that mortification last week. And we have to make pleasing God the highest priority of our lives. Now, by the way, again, who was our example for that? Jesus was. He wanted to please God. Second Chronicles. Well, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Hold on. I'm getting ahead of myself. Skip the page there. Back up a little bit. The fourth thing is, Christ was diligent 
in pursuing and fulfilling the work God gave him to do. Acts 10.38. The Bible says that Jesus went about doing good. Now, <clears throat> as far as we know, his public ministry uh, lasted about three and a half years, give or take. But think about what he accomplished in that short period of time. Think about the lives that he touched, the people that he, that he healed. And by the way, those things that he did during that three and a half years of ministry will be celebrated throughout all eternity. Those lives were changed forever. And the reason was, it was a work that God had given him to do. But the good thing is, Jesus set his heart on doing the work. He was committed to do what God had called him to do. In John chapter 4, Jesus met the woman at the well. Uh, while the discourse was going on between Jesus and the woman at the well, the disciples had gone back. Uh, to town to get some food to eat. And uh, they knew that Christ hadn't eaten all day, and they were urging him, you know, you, you need to eat. But look what he says in verse 34 of John 4. Amen. That word meat is my food. My food. My what I sustain myself with is more than physical food. It's doing the will of the one who sent me. Jesus was committed to doing the will of God. And here's what's interesting. As far as I can remember reading through the New Testament, he never fainted. No matter how great the opposition became, he got frustrated a few times. He said to the disciples in Mark 9, O ye of little faith. How long do I need to put up with you, basically? But he never, ever fainted. And what's interesting, do you realize, well, let me ask you a question. We learn from the scriptures that Jesus only did a ministry about three and a half years. Do you think Jesus knew ahead of time how long he had for ministry? Why would you say yes? He knows all things, yes. He knew that. He knew there would be a time... His work would stop. John 9, 4. So what's Jesus saying? Amen. The old farmer said, make hay when the sun's shining, right? I've got to do it now. I've got to be about the Father's business. And if you study the ministry of Christ, he used every opportunity to come up with. It didn't matter. He didn't turn any down, any occasion. Uh, we know from John 3, he met Nicodemus at nighttime. Now, we don't know the, the necessary reason for that, but nonetheless, uh, we, we spoke about in John 4, the woman at the well. Uh, he stopped. And by the way, now we know the whole story. Jesus knew the woman would be there at the well. 
But if you read the context of John 4, why did Jesus stop there to begin with? He was thirsty. He was tired. And he wanted to drink a water. Now, again, I know he knew the woman would be there. But even in the midst of his tiredness and being thirsty, he still preached the gospel to the woman there at the well. There was a time uh, Peter, speaking to the Lord, and Christ had told the disciples of his impending death, of what would happen when they got to Jerusalem. And Peter cried to change Jesus' mind about that. And do you know what Peter, Jesus said to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Now, keep in mind, he wasn't calling Peter Satan. He knew who, who was the one behind all this. Satan was. Peter thought he was doing the right thing. But Jesus saying, look, I can't spare myself, Peter. I know that what you want, but I cannot do it. I must finish the work God the Father sent me to do. And this one hit me hard, folks. Do you think that Jesus trifled his, or flitted his life away while he was here? I think he made every moment count. Don't you? Yeah. Now, you know what my problem is, Phyllis? Sometimes I think i got all the time in the world. But if he didn't waste it, should we waste our life? Absolutely not. A very close friend of mine, for many years, he moved to... Hope Rick's not watching him. He, went, he moved to the Gatlinburg area, not quite in Gatlinburg. Uh, I think they call it, it's, I would call it Marysville. They call it Marsville down there, I think. And great man of God. He and I used to do a lot of visitation together. And he told me, he said, uh, some years, this been many, many, many years ago, uh, he worked at, at General Electric and said he had a friend of his, or an acquaintance that was unsaved. And he said, God was kind of leading me to go talk to him about his salvation. And so the problem was it was quite, a, even if we worked in the same company, it was quite a long walk from where he was to where that fellow worked. So he said, one day came, I thought, well, I'll go tomorrow. Tomorrow came, and he said, well, I'll, I'll go the third day. Uh, well, he goes the third day, and the fellow, I don't remember his name now, uh, for lack of a little say John, and my friend said, well, where's John at? And the fellow working beside him said, didn't you hear John died yesterday? And my friend never, ever got over that. He, I mean, when he told me, and several years already passed, it still broke his heart. So we can't waste our life away on things that don't matter. We can't be lazy in our walk with God. And, and by the way, <laughs> look around you tonight. We don't necessarily make up the brightest in the bunch, do we? But guess what God has done? He's called all of us into service. Has he not? And is it not an honor? Now, by the way, I'm including myself in the bunch, okay? 
But is it not an honor to be called of God into service? That he allows you and I. Paul said earthen vessel. This treasure is an earthen vessel, weak vessel. And he, he, what an honor to be used of God. Second Chronicles 15, verse 2. Thank you, Phyllis. Asa, the king of Judah. And the man of God goes out to him and says, I've got a message from God for you, Asa. And here's what God told me to tell you. As long as you and the country is with me, God says he'll be with you. God says if you seek him, you will find him. But if you forsake him, guess what? He will forsake you. It's important, church, that we be steadfast in our obedience. Because if we're steadfast in the work of obedience, that is our greatest security in the hour of temptation. And by the way, write it down. Get it in your head. If you walk with Christ, Satan will tempt you. And steadfast obedience is the greatest security. The Lord is with us while we are with him. Luke 8, verse 18. Okay, and I'm not going to ask you to repeat the verse, but what's the principle we learn from this verse? If you don't use what you have, you're going to lose it. If you want more, do what? Yeah, use it. Use what you have and you will get more. So if we are diligent in practicing holiness, that's the way to get more. And so all the spiritual graces that God has for us, they grow by being used. Spiritual acts will lead to spiritual habits. Think about that. And when we use our talents to God, we're faithful in that, God will reward us by an increase. Now, by the way, I'm not a health and wealth preacher, but you give to get to give to get. You give yourself to God to get more. And that's exactly the principle going on here. And so also, if we are diligent and steadfast in our work for God, <clears throat> it is certainly another indicator to an assur- the assurance of the love of God. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 8 through 10.
Thank you, Phyllis. Now, I eliminated some of the verses for time's sake tonight, uh, but Peter lists several things that were to add to our saving faith, virtue, knowledge, goodness, and you know most of them. And Peter says, if, if those things are in you, and these are things we're to add to our faith, not for salvation, Peter says, you won't be barren, and you won't be unfruitful in what you know about Christ. You'll know more about Jesus. But then in verse 9, he gives a warning. If you lack those things, he said, you're blind. You are blind. And you, you can't see afar off. And you've forgotten that you were purged from your old sins. Now listen very carefully. If we are diligent in obedience, it is the greatest guard against backsliding. Some years ago, our former pastor's brother, youngest brother, he said that uh, somebody visited his church and, and uh, they asked him, do you believe in backsliding? He said, no, we don't believe. We practice it. The truth of the matter, every Christian is not careful. And the greatest guard of about that is being diligent to obey what Christ wants us to do. Because if we allow, if we allow ourselves to become cold, it will lead to being careless in our walk with God. And carelessness will cause us to begin to neglect things. And if we allow that neglecting to go so far... It is going to lead to apostasy. And the more diligent we are in serving God, the more we'll become more like Christ. He was diligent in doing that. He's our pattern. And so we need to be diligent. The fifth thing about his life he lived that left us an example or a pattern. The fact that he, um, how should I put this? He didn't go around offending people on purpose. Now, by the way, and hear me well, the gospel was meant to be offensive, designed to be that way. It was designed to bring division. Jesus himself said that. But while he was here on earth, he took care not to injure anyone and not only was he holy, he was harmless. He gave up his own personal rights to avoid being offensive, and we talked about it last week when he gave the tax money. He didn't have to, because his kingdom was not of this world. But rather than be offensive, he said, I'll pay the taxes. First Peter chapter 2, look at verse 23, one of my favorite verses in Peter.
Okay, thank you, Dan. Does anybody know who the who is there in verse 23? Jesus Christ. Okay. We know he was reviled. And it literally means they were throwing words at him. Now think about ourselves. Whenever people are throwing words at us, normally what do we want to do? Throw them back at them. I know Rhonda's dad is with us tonight. We we love him, but uh, I'm telling a story I heard from somebody else, okay? Rhonda, you heard this story at at a national meeting one time. Uh, One of the preachers grew up in Kentucky, just across the river from West Virginia. And he said the West Virginians would take dynamite and throw it across the river at us. He said, we didn't care. We would light it and throw it back. Remember that story, Rhonda? Yeah, you remember who told it, too. (laughs) Now, I'm sure that's a joke. But anyway, they were hurling words of Christ. And by the way, if anybody could light the dynamite, could Jesus? Yeah, but he didn't. He didn't hurl them back. But what did he do? He committed himself to God, the one who judges righteously. What an example for you and I to follow. His life was so upright that even when his enemies, and and they tried, They tried to find something against him, something that they could pin on him and say, we got you now. John 19, verse 4. What was Pilate's conclusion? He was innocent. Now, you know the story. They even had to hire false witnesses at his trial. And they couldn't even get them to agree on their lie. And Pilate says, I don't see anything wrong here. Philippians chapter 2, look at verse 15. Thank you, Dan. Blameless, harmless. We are the sons of God. And yet we live in a crooked, perverse generation. But does that mean we're to react the way they react? No. Even in the midst of the wicked world we live in, we are to shine as lights. We're to let the light of Christ shine through our lives. And Jesus refused to be offensive when it was unnecessary. And we should do the same. But make no mistake about it. The the Bible is very clear. We do need to speak the truth, but we have to speak that truth in love. And I mean in love, that we care about the ones we're speaking to. And we have to obey God's command. That you and I live our lives in such a way 
that we are blameless, that we are the sons of God, and the world cannot rebuke us for things we do, because we do what God wants us to do. Matthew ten sixteen. Thank you. Jesus knew when he sent the disciples out, it's like sending sheep in the midst of wolves. Meaning what? Yeah, you're in danger. They're going to want to devour you. But let me tell you what you need to do. Be as wise as a serpent, but make sure you're as harmless as a dove. We've got to win them to Jesus Christ. Do you realize tonight as a child of God, the honor of Christ, the one whose name we claim, at the word Christian means Christians. We are identifying with Christ. His honor is bound up in the way we behave. Isn't that true? It is so true. And when the world sees someone who names the name of Christ, living like the rest of the world, it brings dishonor to the name of God. Church, be careful. Be careful how we live in the midst of the broken world. So we too, we are to be wise as serpents and we're to be harmless as doves. A sixth thing about, thing about Christ we're to use for example is his humility and his meekness. Matthew eleven twenty nine. we've been here for quite some time. It's our text verse. I want to read it again. We've been looking at learn to me, but look at the next phrase. Jesus said, for I am meek and lowly in heart. What does that mean? What does that mean? Was he a sissy? No. Think about this. First of all, we talked about a while ago, he wasn't born God, he was already God. Isn't that true? And so what he did, he's meek and lowly because he lowered himself. And he did that by taking on the form of a servant. In fact, in John 13, there at the Last Supper, he b- was meek enough. The Bible says he stooped down and did what to their feet? He washed their feet. He washed their feet. Yes, he did. But also that Sunday before that, When he rode into Jerusalem, as he presented himself as the king of Israel, did he ride on a white stallion? On a lowly donkey. Matthew 21, verse 5. That's how he came. 
meek and lowly. Matthew 20, verse 28. That word minister there means to serve or be served. If anyone deserved to be served to Jesus, sure he did. But he said, I didn't come for that. I didn't come that you would serve me. I came to serve you. And I came to give my life a ransom, a payment for many. Matthew nine eleven. What surprised them? What were they surprised about? Yeah. How how could you associate with the, may I use the word low life of the time? You can get much lower. Maybe shepherds were lower than that. That's about it. How could you do that? Did Jesus think he was too good to eat with those kind of people? No. He condescended that low. First Peter five five. Again, Peter's writing on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he tells the younger to submit themselves to the older people. <clears throat> and you older people would say, yeah, that's right. But in case we misinterpret that, he said, we've all got to be subject one to another. But the key here is, in order for that to happen, we have to be clothed with humility. Was Jesus clothed with humility? Yes. He is our example. And whenever we're doing that, when we clothe ourselves with humility, it's another way we are showing the world and other believers that, yes, we are conforming, if you will, to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I guess my question would be, what place does pride have in the life of a believer? You're awful blunt there, Phyllis. None. I agree. Amen. And by the way, we all deal with it. But it has no place in our lives. And whenever we allow pride to come into our lives, it's simply evidence that we are we're lacking communion with Christ. But it's also being ignorant of God's Word. God hates pride, and pride comes before the fall. And I want to say tonight, I don't know of anything more provoking to God. I don't know anything that would quickly separate a person from from God than pride. It's an awful, awful thing. And my friend, it's something Satan will use against us as well. Psalm 138, verse 6. Wow. So the Lord's high. 
Easy? But guess who he respects? The lowly. But not the proud. Not the proud. And we have to remember that pride is a serious stumbling block to the children of God. And our attitude is not to be ambitious like the world's great ones, but to be content simply to serve Christ, even as one of his little ones. And the best place to learn humility is at his feet. And we need to show it in every area of our life. First Peter 3, verse 3 and 4. I thank you, Dan. I also know the context of these verses. Uh, Peter's addressing women whose husbands are unsaved. And uh, Peter says, don't nag them and don't you know, do certain things. Uh, don't just be uh, trying to win them with your makeup and your curling your hair and wearing gold and uh, putting on apparel. And Now, he's not against those things. That's not what he's saying. Uh, not at all. A lot of people have taken that out of context. That's not what he means. Uh, what he's saying is this. It's, one, it's, one, it's what's on the inside that matters. Now, I realize he's, in this context, applying it to the wife. But when he said, let it be the hidden man of the heart, which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which in the sight of God is a great pride. That, my friend, applies to all believers. That is what ought to shine in our lives. A humble quiet, meek spirit. And we need to to put that on display in our lives. And we need to cultivate fellowship that way. And by the way, you can't cultivate fellowship by being conceited. We've got to have that gentle, meek spirit. Romans 12, 16. Romans 12, 16. The warning is clear. The warning is clear. Don't think too much of yourself. Be willing to lower yourself even to others who are of low estate. And don't be wise in your own conceits. Ephesians 3.8 Does anybody know who wrote the letter to the church at Ephesus? Who wrote this letter? Paul did. And how did Paul see himself compared to other Christians? The what? The lowest. 
And by the way, know this for sure, this was not a pretense. Paul was not kidding, being facetious. That's how he saw himself. Now, did he have any, from a human standpoint, let me clarify that, did he have any, any reason to boast? Sure he did. In fact, when he wrote the second letter to the church of Corinth, he started bragging about himself and he said, I speak as a fool. But he realized it didn't matter. He's the least of all the saints. I want to say again tonight, folks, we have a wonderful example to follow. That's why Jesus said, learn of me. And I hope you're like me, you realize that we will spend a lifetime learning of him. We will never exhaust those resources. We will never get to a place in this world where we can truly say, I've arrived. The only time we can say that, and we step over Jordan into that celestial city. Well, we're not finished yet. We'll pick it up here next week, Lord willing. If Jesus comes, don't worry about coming next Wednesday, okay? We'll see you in heaven.